Morning, everyone. Let's pray. Lord, we ask as we come to passage that, Lord, you would open it up for us, help us, bring to us uh, an understanding of what you are saying, help us to take it in, help us to see what you are saying, change us and challenge us, help us and, and make us and transform us, make us more like Jesus, we pray, and keep me from error, we ask. In his name we ask. Amen. Well, we're, we're still on Sermon of the Mounty type things. Uh, so it goes from chapter 5 verses through to chapter 7, 28 or something. And as we said, this is the first of five long speeches in the book. And you do well to look at them because they are very important for Matthew's gospel as a whole. The audience, as we remember, is the people who he's particularly just called, the disciples. But we noticed in verse 1 of chapter 5, the crowds are in the background and are around, and that the speech allows us to finally hear Jesus speaking for himself and how we, we're learning how he does things, how impressive he is, and what he says and what impact that has. We're noticing the impact that it has on the disciples. We're going to try and notice the impact it has on the crowds. Remember at the end in 728, they are astonished by the end. And we said this speech is part of that light that Jesus is bringing and dawning into the world and that in the audience are people who are Gentile, the people who are living in darkness under the shadow of death. This is that light that Jesus is bringing. Firstly, salt in chapter, verse 13 to 16. It's been suggested, and I think it's right, is that salt and light summarises the two divisions of last week. What do you mean, Keith? The verses 3 to 6 of chapter 5, the first four Beatitudes, which we said were about an inner working of what's happening in what God's people are like, and that salt and that light is verses 7 to 10, the things that they are, can see and that light that people can see is on display in the world. That's what I, that's been suggested, and I think that's right. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. The question is, one question you could ask is, is you are the salt of the earth being added to or, when, or being repeated by the phrase, you are the light of the world. Do you understand what I'm saying? No, that was too confusing. Sorry. You are the salt of the earth. The phrase, you are the light of the world, could be a repeat of the same thought. Or, in I'm saying is actually, it's another saying. 
and I'm saying it's related to the first four Beatitudes, salt. The second light is the seven verses through the ten of verse five, the next four Beatitudes. Salt is in the Old Testament and in the ancient Near East around where they lived, it's a sign of permanence. It's a sign of something that is durable, that lasts. Leviticus chapter 2 verse 13 described Israel's covenant as a covenant of salt. Numbers 18.19 added a little word called everlasting. It is an everlasting covenant of salt. And the passage we read today, did we read it? I wasn't here. Uh, Sorry, we did read it. That's good. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, you notice David's covenant was a covenant of salt. The covenant of salt is the covenant that God has made, whether you think it as the Moses one, Mosaic covenant, that's what... People who have read too many theological textbooks, that's what they say. Things like Mosaic Covenant, you heard that before? That's what they mean, it's the covenant made with Moses. Or they say it's the Davidic Covenant. Again, people who have read too many textbooks and read too many books say add ick on everything. So it's the covenant made with David. Those covenants are not separate and different. They are connected. God's covenant with his people is developing and progressing as God reveals more about his will, but it is the same covenant. And Jesus is saying that covenant is here in the people he addresses now, the new covenant as we would call it. But covenant of salt means it's indissoluble. Why did Keith? What, I've, 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 does anyone know what indissoluble even means? You're looking at me. Uh, it's like who likes jelly? Do you like jelly? Do you know how you fill a bowl of water with jelly, and then you open the packet and you spill it? Oh, no, that's what I do. Sorry. You just open the packet and you put it in, and then you get a spoon and you stir it. Why do you stir it? Because it's, you want it to dissolve. And so you know how it eventually dissolves? It becomes jelly. The covenant that God made with his people cannot be dissolved. It is indissoluble. It cannot be dissolved It cannot be destroyed. It cannot be stopped. That's what's being said when it it is a covenant of salt. It was a symbol of God's faithfulness and fidelity to what he has promised. God will faithfully keep his promises and he's keeping them to Moses, keeping them in David. It will keep going. It will endure It cannot be broken. It cannot be destroyed. It is indissoluble. Salt represents the first four Beatitudes 
in the fact that the character of the person who is part of the kingdom of heaven will, will endure. These characteristics will be there. They are poor in spirit. They are reliant on their saviour. They mourn, mourn the righteousness in their lives is not greater. They mourn that righteousness in the kingdom is not more. They mourn that righteousness in our world is not total. They are meek. They are humble. They understand that they are totally reliant on their God, not earning their inheritance. And they hunger and thirst for righteousness because they want to see the fulfilment of what God has promised. They live that way. They wanted everything to be that way. It is them. These four Beatitudes are a given, these first four. They are who people are of the kingdom. You can't be of the kingdom and not have these four. They are indissoluble. They cannot not be there. They will be there. They are permanent. You, says Jesus, are the salt of the world. These four things are an enduring characteristic of all those who call on the name of the Lord God. If Israel could have been these four things, then the promised land would have been theirs. But now there is a new group in front of Jesus, isn't it? They're the ones he's called to himself, the disciples, and he is saying, this is who you are. He is saying, you are the new Israel. The community have left Israel in one sense. Remember last week, how do you belong to the kingdom? By belonging to him. They are guaranteed that in belonging to him, these characteristics of the Lord God's covenant and his people continue. This is a continuation. Though they have come out of Israel, they are Israel, and that the promises of God continue to them. You are the salt of the world. You are the inheritors of of all that God has promised in his covenant. The promises to Israel still stand because Israel is now not an ethnic or social term. It is now a faith term, faith in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, light. The two are connected, of course. To be the light of the world the new community must first be salt. It must have the promises of God received and indwelled in them. That insoluble permanent character of who they are in the Lord God, in Christ, now they can be light. The new Israel will reflect the last Beatitudes of verses 7 to 10. Keith, you're saying, Keith, I thought we did the Beatitudes last week. Sorry, it's all a continuation and I've got it all mixed up. They are merciful. They are pure in heart, peacemakers, 
They are persecuted because of righteousness. The new mission to this world where God is gathering his people to himself is a continuation of what God has always done in his people or in his covenant. The promises to Abraham, we keep raving on about them, chapter 12, verse 3 of Genesis, they still stand. They are to be a blessing. Israel was to be a blessing to the world. And as Jesus looks at his people in front of him, that's whom they're meant to be. And he makes this plain in verse 14 when he says, you are a city on a hill. That phrase, city on a hill, sometimes messed around with and put town on a hill, which is, I don't know where they get that from. It's a city, city on a hill, Isaiah is found in Isaiah chapter 40, verse to 66 especially. And what it is, is it's a term for Zion. Zion is God's city in the centre of the world, which all the world will stream to. Jesus is saying, as he looks at his disciples in front of him, he's saying, you are that city. You are the light of the world and the world will stream to you. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 3 and 5. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Verse 5. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Here on the mount, Jesus is teaching his new Israel his ways, God's ways, and he's making sure they know that this is a continuation of all that God has ever done. God has promised his covenant to his people and his people are found in him and they're before him. We will eventually call this group the church. We haven't got there. This is just the disciples. This small hill named Zion becomes a towering world mountain, as it does in Isaiah. It reflects and it echoes all that God has done, but particularly what he was doing at, at Sinai. Jesus looks like a Moses figure as he teaches and he's saying, all these things are transformed in me. Light is a personal characteristic here, though, isn't it? You are light, he's saying to his disciples. We're hearing it. And, of course, as we are down the track, as you might have, we who accepted Jesus, we hear that. You are light of the world. The you, of course, is the disciples, and they are a city built on a hill that cannot be hid. They are Zion, that fortified city that will always stand and the world will stream to. They stand out in character. Why? Because they had the first four Beatitudes. Those first four Beatitudes shine in the next four. Do you like how I've even got four up? The next four, and that is the light. They are salt, 
and they are light. As Zion, they stand out a world that is forever changing because they stand in God's permanent promises. This new community, in a sense, are a replacement for Zion. They are a continuation of God's work. The Messiah has come and will lead this new beginning. This new Israel will be that light. And they are in him. Verse 16, let their light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. As we said, this new community is a continuing is continuing what God always wanted Israel to be, a light to the world. It's a community role, but it's also individually, isn't it? As a community, they embellish the first four beatitudes, those internal unchanging characteristics and in and as they live they live out the next four in a world that is looking for light they shine in the darkness because remember the gentiles who are here live in darkness under the shadow of death people see their characteristics and their qualities and know that they are different. They know and they praise their Father in heaven. Salt and light. Thirdly, fulfilment of the law, which is verses 17 to 20, apparently, I say. There are two questions, of course. Once you come to this, you wonder, why is why now the law? Why are we talking about the law? Secondly, what does Jesus mean for him to fulfill the law? He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Do not all the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and of the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Has anyone ever had their house demolished? You ever rung anyone up and said, I'd like to demolish my house because I'm building a new one? Anyone done that before? What happens when they demolish a house? What happens? Trucks come along, bulldozers, build other things big bits of machinery, people knocking things down. What's left? Rubble, and hopefully they take that away. They leave it clean and they start again. Jesus is saying, I have not come to demolish the law, and he makes that clear. His new community 
is not separate from what God has done before. Not separate from the law, not separate from the Mosaic covenant, not separate from the David Davidic covenant, as we say. It is a continuation. It is not plan A. Oh, that didn't work. Plan B, Jesus. It's not that. Jesus is saying this is a continuation. They are the new Jerusalem. They are the new Israel. The prophets had said that the, the law would go forth into the world. Isaiah 2. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the gods of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, the law and the prophets, uh, sorry, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The law and the prophets is a, probably uh, a clever way of summarising what the scriptures are, but it might not be that. But Jesus is saying that his ministry has come to uphold the law, not to demolish it, but to uphold it and to fulfil it. He's fulfilling the scriptures at its widest prophetic application, which is a hard sentence to explain. Jesus' mission and his reason for being here fulfills all the prophets look for, fulfilled everything and pushes it forward in ways that we cannot imagine but eventually we'll see when we study what, the, what God has said in through the prophets. Israel's understanding of what God is doing and has done is bankrupt. Verse 20. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not replacing the law. He's fulfilling the law and he's explaining in his teachings the law's ultimate expression of what it means to be God's people. We will find as we go through the gospel, we will find episodes where the Pharisees and the teachers of the law teaching will be bankrupt. Remember that saying, it's uh, some people don't have, uh, what's that one, where you don't have to give to your parents or to your mother the honour that's due to them. You could do it, give it to God, do all those things. They were making these loopholes. The law was being expounded in their books. They had laws that and guidelines that suddenly explain what God had said. Jesus is saying they are bankrupt. They do not have the first four characteristics of the kingdom. If they did, they would be God's light. But now Jesus has come in fulfilment of what God had promised in his covenants and in the prophets. In Jesus' teaching, the covenant will find its ultimate expression. His teaching constitutes and sits at the centre of who this new group is, 
this new church, this new Israel, this new Jerusalem. And Jesus' teaching will transcend the law and give its full expression, give full expression to its inner spirit. That's a quote actually from Bill Dumbrell. The teaching of Jesus would mean the end of the age of what is known as Israel. For the Sinai covenant will be finished and in its place will begin the new covenant. But the new covenant is not without the old. As Jesus says, I've come to fulfill it. It will be this place where in Jesus' death, the new age of Israel will come and he, by pouring out his spirit on his people, he will make his people, these people he's gathered around him, he will make them salt and they will be light. They will be poor in spirit. They will humbly receive God's mercy and love and relentlessly pursue God's ways as they live and they live out this character as they are merciful, pure in heart, peacemaking and doing so, giving witness and suffering for Christ because of it. Are we salt? Have we, uh, we worked out what happens with chewing gum when it loses its flavour, although I swear you have to have bubble gum to blow bubbles, not chewing gum. But anyway, that's a, that's just me being picky. I'm a very picky person. Uh, are we salt? Uh, what Jesus was saying, because of the teaching of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Israel was not salt. It was not living God's ways. It had, didn't teach his ways. And so what do you do with salt if it loses its saltiness? That's actually impossible. But if it does, like the bubble gum, grape, you throw it out. Actually, you wrap it and then throw it out. Are we salt? If we are people who come to Jesus, in coming to him, he will transform us and make us these first four Beatitudes, and we will live as light, those last four, where that internal integrity and character of what God has done for us pours out of our lives. In doing so, people see that. But it's a challenge for us. I don't know about you, but Christians like the company of other Christians more than they like other people of the world. That's a truth which we have to face because if I'm shining to you, well, that's lovely and nice and you can be encouraged or you shine to me and that's lovely and nice, but how do we shine in a world when we don't know the world? And I'm talking individually here. It's important that perhaps we actually have our friends with our neighbours. Of course, we have our family. And we all have people in our family. We want to be salt and light. But if we make friends 
with people who aren't Christians, they will see our difference. Uh, Viv had a, 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 Wycliffe had a teaching development week, you know, just before the other, last week I think it was, and they had someone who came and talked about how, you know, how yes, it's getting tough, but actually a lot of people, as they do the research, a lot of people are looking for how to go forward in life how to live, how to operate. They're looking for structure in a world that's all over the place. They're looking for truth and they are looking for light. They want salt. There's a great encouragement for us to continue to be these things and Jesus' teachings are central in all this because this group that he's addressing are in him. Persecuted. Why? Because we're a pain in the neck, or I'm annoying, or I'm just a, a turkey? No. Persecuted for Christ. I must be salt to be light. And we become salt by God's gracious love to us as he pours his spirit upon us and into us and transforms us. We go to our Lord Jesus because he is the one who is central, central to the promises of God, central to our lives and central to God's everlasting future. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and praise that you have gathered us to yourself. We pray that uh, we might be that light in this world. We pray for our world that needs so much light. Lord, we pray that we would be people made of salt and the characteristics of your Holy Spirit would grow in us, you would change us and conform us to be more like our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> May we hunger and thirst for righteousness. As we do so, Lord, help us to live in ways, help us to speak in ways, help us to be people of salt that we might be light in your world. We pray for opportunities in our family, with our friends. We pray for opportunities in this community for us to be who you want us to be. Thank you for Hazelbrook next week, I think it is. Lord, we pray for that witness that you would help us to stand out and be salt and light. And we ask, Lord, that your blessings would be upon all that we do and say, for Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Our last song together...